I was thinking uh, the last few days that if, uh, if following Jesus means anything, then it means everything. Do you know what I mean by that? Right? If, if following Jesus means anything in life, then it means everything in life. You, you could generalize that a little bit. If, if, if God is at all true, then God is the point of everything. Right? That's, the existence of God is like the one fact that changes every single aspect of life and the universe. You know, it's one of those things. And, uh, and I was just thinking about my own discipleship journey from when I was young to uh, the robust version of middle age you see before you. Um, that, uh, that's a good way to describe uh, the journey. Right? It's just me uh, more and more uh, coming to grips with the reality of my uh, faith in Jesus, right? It's one thing to kind of admit that God exists. It's one thing to admit that, oh, Jesus is a reliable teacher and leader. It's another thing to think, no, there's something divine going on in Jesus. And, and so gradually you realize that it has to be your whole life, you know? And, uh, and then I was just thinking about how uh, inspiring and helpful it is for me to travel through life uh, with traveling companions, uh, such as many of you, that are living as if Jesus is uh, your whole life. So one, two, three, pat yourself on the back. And uh, that was a long-winded way of me saying thank you uh, to you, uh, helping me along. Uh, I'm not great at gratitude. Uh, I usually uh, like to approach it from the side like that, but consider yourself thanked. But, but we will extend it this way. Why don't you uh, turn to the companions around you, to the crew around you, and let's say something that sort of, you know, uh, declares and exhorts the faith of being together. Say uh, to the people around you, there's strength in numbers. There's strength in numbers. It's good, it's good to have you as a number here today. You're more than a number, but together we're, we're numbers. Do you guys like, do you like gathering? Like, you like gathering like in church? You like fellowship? You like gathering? How many of you like it? How many of you don't like it? I was kind of hoping for more support from the introverts in the crowd. Come on. Come on, Keith Hamasaki. My, he's like, he's my brother in extreme introversion. But he's, he's friendly and gracious and all these things that I'm not. All right. Um, all right, switching gears just slightly. Uh, that was long announcement time, so got to get our brain juices uh, flowing. Got to do a warm-up question. Here's your warm-up question. It's kind of, kind of general. What are some things that you need to be healthy in life? What are some things you need to be healthy in life? People from my Ohana group, you're not allowed to answer. Uh, what are some things you need to be healthy in life? Beauty. Beauty. And you married me. <laughs> well done, honey. Well done. What else? Some things you need to be healthy in life. It's not a hard question, people. I ask you... Rest and recovery time. Rest and recovery time. Rest, like one might say a Sabbath. That would be Christian-y. Good. Purpose, <laughs> so important in so many ways, yeah? What else? 
Oxygen. Oxygen, yeah. Exercise, yeah. Sad but true for many of us. We need exercise to be healthy in life. What else? Trusted friends and family, yeah. That's good. Challenges. Challenges. It's interesting. You got to have music. You got to have music. What else? Sleep. Speaking of rest and recovery, there is no substitute for good old-fashioned sleep. A couple more. Fun. Fun. I hear that's important. Fun. No matter. Babysitting, babysitting. <laughs> Good, yeah. Yeah, particularly if you have, oh, twins. And then, uh, yeah. A nutritious diet, thank you. Thank you, is that guy? Yeah. Love, not bad, yeah. All right, now we're warming up. Now we're, now we're starting to feel it. I asked that question, I've asked it several times over uh, the past few weeks, just to kind of see how people respond. Nobody ever says stress. Vern almost got there with challenges. And I would argue that probably exercise is a way of saying that, right? Um, I heard a, this famous physiologist say recently that your body is a machine for turning stress into health, right? If you don't stress out your muscles, if you don't stress out your heart, your cardiovascular system, uh, then your body will not be fit. And I think probably the same is true of your brain, right? If you don't stress your, your brain, you don't give it uh, confusing tasks to do, uh, then it ceases to be sharp, and then it turns to mush. I would say that stress is really important, but it's kind of a bad word, right? Because if you say stress to people, like, well, I want to get stress out of my life, but you kind of don't, right? What you want to do is handle stress really well. If you have zero stress in your life, what will become of you? You will become a blob. I'm sorry, what was that sound effect? There, a little louder? There you go, okay. I want to I make sure the recording grabbed it. You become that, right? Uh, the same token, if you don't handle stress well, right, or um, if it comes to you in a form uh, that traumatizes you, that breaks you, right? You can, have, you can have stress in your legs that make them strong. You can have a traumatic stress in your leg that breaks the bone. And then you need rest and recovery. <laughs> uh, and then you need uh, healing and proper nutrition and all of those things. Oh, just an interesting meditation on the value of stress. We're in this sermon series called How to Help the Devil. Uh, yeah, thanks. And the idea, of course, is that if we become familiar with how the devil does things, uh, then we will be better able to resist his traps against us. And this is sort of a, uh, a heuristic, a teaching method that was made famous by a guy named C.S. Lewis in the 40s who wrote this book, The Screwtape Letters, in which a senior devil named Wormwood gives lessons to a junior devil named Screwtape, and it, it records the conversation that they have and it's uh, helped you know, countless thousands of people over the years uh, because it just sort of turns you on to the traps that culture, devilish culture, uh, puts before you. Uh, one of the things uh, that you learn when studying Satan's deceptions 
is that, as Paul says, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. That the main method that the devil uses against us is not to attract us to the dark, but to attract us to things that look light, but are actually dark, right? So Satan's number one trick is to get you to do dumb and destructive things that you think are virtuous things. And the way he does this typically is that he gets us to focus on one virtue in a way that excludes other virtues. In the same way that the best lie always has a partial truth in it, the best Satanism, if you will, always has a virtue but not all of them, or a part of a virtue but not all of it, something like that. And in doing the one virtue, you think you're virtuous, whereas in ignoring the others, you're actually being negligent and narrow and unhealthy. Well, it's like eating one healthy thing. Our analogy has been if you eat spinach because it's healthy, that's great. But if all you ever eat is spinach, you will eventually get sick and die because it doesn't have everything that you need. The definition of the word integrity is to be integrated, is to have all things connect together. And we want all virtues to connect together in us. Uh, we want to be integrated as opposed to disintegrated. If you are a disintegrated person, if there is some virtue that you ignore in your life, then you actually spread disintegration in the world. You spread disintegration to the people around you. Uh, and today we're going to talk about the virtue of Christian fellowship, of gathering, of I don't know, brotherly love, uh, whatever term that you care to give it, because that's a big Christian thing. And we're going to ask, how might devils use Christian fellowship to ruin people? How might devils use Christian fellowship to ruin people? Which is a little bit like asking, how might devils use people to ruin people, right? So not hard to answer that question uh, because people are universally bothersome and frustrating. Even really beautiful people to whom you're married uh, can, be, can be bothersome. So uh, fellowship can easily damage you with bother, right? Because people bother you. Um, but, as it turns out, I think the normal devilish deception is to try to get you to create a fellowship that does not include bother. Healthy fellowship is stressful. Unhealthy fellowship is not stressful. And it's really easy for Satan to sell the idea that fellowship should not be stressful. That relationship Godly relationship should not be stressful. And that's the flip. That's the disintegration uh, that Satan usually tries to sell. So here on out uh, until the end of the sermon, I'm going to talk in the voice of a devil. And I, playing the role of senior devil, will coach you how to be junior devils. So as I switch to a devilish voice, it freaks some people out. It's like, are you, are you, are you talking as Pastor Jordan or are you talking as socio-Pastor Jordan? That's been the question. So my good friends, the Chongs, got me this costume. Oh. Just, just, just Craig. What? Is that is that helpful? Not helpful. This is like gonna take. So like, when this gets out on social media, there's gonna be like you know a thousand people around the island gonna be like, I knew it. Blue water is a cult. <laughs> All right, that's that. You're taking your pictures. 
Because the idea is that you don't know. The idea is that I rattle your cage a little bit. You're like, wait a minute. Is, that, is he lying right now or is he telling the truth? And if I get you into that uncomfortable space, that's how this sermon makes, makes you learn, right? That's, that's how it works. That's, that's the trick. That's the trick. Um, so I will, I will save this for counseling sessions. What's the devilish trick, uh, junior devils, to get Christians who have to fellowship? Is there a better Christian word than fellowship? It's very Christian-y. How do we get fellowshipping Christians uh, to disintegrate uh, themselves and to disintegrate their fellowship? Fellowship is super powerful. It's a super powerful tool for us devils because... um, Ministry would actually be very exciting were it not for people, right? People are the source of of frustration. And we get people to come to church, right? They have to want God. But to get people to leave church, all we have to do is make them sit next to a frustrating person. All we have to do is to get the teaching pastor to say one thing that might be uh, challenging or stressful or uncomfortable, and they will leave and probably take people with them. Uh, So nothing is easier than to divide people from people. Nothing is easier than to divide Christians from Christians. We want uh, Christians to use Christianity as their reason to divide and to reject and to frustrate. And that's pretty easy to do. We've been doing it for thousands of years. If you just read the Gospels, right, Jesus' main opponents in the Gospels were religious leaders, were other religious people. Uh, and then, you know, uh, sinners, not much of an opposition. They actually liked him. But righteous people, big opposition, eventually killed him uh, by using the sinners. Um, so this is easy for us. This should be our wheelhouse. Uh, it's proper, uh, if we're going to apply this trick well, junior devils, Uh, to understand what fellowship is supposed to be for, what integrated fellowship is supposed to be for. And fellowship, Christian fellowship, is basically a way of relationships that makes people healthy, a way of relationships that make people healthy. If there is such a thing as Christian fellowship, it means a group of relationships that make the people involved healthier. And of course, by healthier, Christians would mean more godly, uh, more robust Christians, more fruitful Christians, more lasting Christians, things like that. So the real question would be, well, what kind of relationships, what way of relationships makes people healthy? And that's kind of like asking, well, what is a healthy diet, right? All sorts of different nutrients are involved. What's a healthy lifestyle? Well, all sorts of different activities are involved. Basically, what healthy fellowship would be for Christians is it would be a combination of warm, affirming, comforting, easy relationships and also stressful, challenging relationships because you need both in your balanced diet of relationships. Actually, the Bible talks about this all the time. It's really frustrating this way, that Bible. It talks about the value of 
Um, you know, brotherly love, sisterly love, family love, adopting in, uh, diverse relationships and stuff like that. It talks about forgiveness and graciousness and gentleness and kindness and sharing with one another. And it says that good relationships can be like iron sharpening iron, which is a really famous proverb in the church that everybody forgets. Uh, that Good, godly relationships can be like two pieces of iron striking each other and breaking chunks off of each other to make a, a sharp, honed edge. We want to be edgy people, and we want to have edgy relationships through which sparks fly and friction creates. We need both. We need both. So you can all look around right now and think, yep, yep, warm, helpful, friction friction. And that would be a healthy way of relationships in a person's life. So, uh, so we can play both ends, devils. We can uh, provoke people to be so stressful it freaks others out. Or we can convince people there should be no stress and everything should be gentle and just kind of provoke uniform comfort and warmth without any uh, friction involved. It's easy to make people reject friction. It's easy to cause friction, and it's easy to make people reject friction. It's easy for us to cause friction, and it's easy to make people reject friction as opposed to exercising it or exorcising it, if you know uh, what I mean. Um, there are... Uh, a lot of models of how this is supposed to work in Scripture, and a lot of models in Scripture about how difficult it is. So Christians know these, supposedly. We want to obscure them. I'll give you an example. Uh, Jesus, um, when he came to earth and created his fellowship around him, uh, gathered famously uh, 12 guys at the core, he had a lot of followers, but he had his own little uh, Ohana group uh, of 12. And uh, most of the Gospels describe how he went about doing this, uh, selecting uh, the 12. Here is the version from Mark chapter three. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. Uh, the, uh, the Matthew version makes clear he prays all night before doing this. So he thought very hard about how to construct his healthy fellowship. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, uh, which means sent ones or messengers or ministers, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Ooh, I hate that part. Uh, these are the 12 he appointed. Simon to whom he gave the name Peter. Uh, you might miss what that means. Simon is a name that means, uh, it comes from the word for, for uh, sandy or unstable sandy. Like uh, in English, we might translate it shifty or unstable one. Uh, and Peter literally means rock. So he went from being unstable to being rocky. Uh, so that was that switch, which tells you a lot about Peter's personality and where he started. Um, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to whom he gave the name Boanerges. 
which means sons of thunder. You might not appreciate what that means in the idiom, but what Jesus was, the nickname Boanerges or sons of thunder essentially means loudmouths, argumentative, because they were always going at each other and they were always going at others. And incidentally, their mom features on occasion in the gospel, and she herself was a piece of work, right? <laughs> she was, if you know the history, she was always butting in and, and requesting better terms for her sons and stuff like that. So she was kind of a bossy sort of lady as well. Very interesting family, I mean, very colorful Mediterranean family. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, we know about Matthew, he was a tax collector, which means he was a traitor to his own people. He betrayed his own people in favor of Roman coin, right? So he was uh, treasonous. Jesus included him. Thomas, who was known as Doubting Thomas, he was an interesting personality, hot and cold. James, son of Alphaeus, Sadius, Simon the Zealot. A zealot would be an ultra-nationalist uh, patriot. They were dedicated to the violent overthrow of the Romans. Uh, they were an assassin's guild on occasion. They trained to kill Roman officials and, wait for it, Jewish traitors, treasonous people. So he walked around with Matthew. And Judas Iscariot... who betrayed him. Uh, Other scriptures make clear that Jesus Jesus knew that Judas would betray him all along. That word Iscariot either means Ishkarioth from Kerioth, which was a southern uh, section of Israel. He would have been the only southerner in the group, so he would have stuck out that way. Or some people think it means Iskari. There was an order of assassins uh, associated with the zealots. Uh, Sikari is a type of dagger, uh, like an assassin's dagger. So he himself might have been an ultra-nationalist from the south or just kind of a foreigner, (laughs) Uh, uh, one who stood out. And of course, he was a betrayer. He was the guy who caved. What does that reading tell you about the way Jesus constructed his fellowship. Did he construct it for harmony? Oh my gosh. The dude prayed through the night, went up on the mountain, and handpicked people who, almost by definition, certainly by essential nature, would hate each other uh, and on occasion threaten violence against each other. And the guy that ultimately he would put in charge was known to be tempestuous and unstable. You know, Peter was the guy to whom Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You know, uh, he he called him uh, my enemy, uh, my opponent. These guys have all sorts of trouble getting along. And if you read the gospel stories, then you see that. They definitely had a lot of trouble getting along. They argued with each other all the time. They argued about who would be greatest. They argued about what the proper policy toward Jesus should be. Um, And I probably don't need to, to tell you because all good devils know scripture well. We used it to try to tempt Jesus in the wilderness after all. 
why did Jesus do it this way? Why did his, he design his fellowship very carefully and intentionally for stress? Well, obviously, it's because this is the proper way for a group to be healthy over time, right? You, you need, uh, when you put people together, you need them to have to intentionally exercise patience and love and the muscles of peace with one another. That's how patience and love and peace grow. They need to be demanded and provoked and this group would have certainly done that. Also, it's a group with some variety in it, some diversity in it. And from this group, all churches sprang. And when you're going to start with a, a family group, you want as much genetic diversity in it as possible, right? So that when people come, they, they can get a grip on it, right? They see their own personalities reflected and accessed and things like that. What we devils would prefer would be specialty groups. We would prefer that Christian fellowships be built around one personality type only, you know, one race only, one social class only, one philosophy only, one worship style only. Like, we want monolithic groups that say to the world, people like us, <laughs> instead of saying to the world, everyone's welcome. Uh, there is health in, in diversity. Uh, so we devils want more inbreeding, essentially. Uh, we want zealot churches. Churches who are super zealous for, I don't know, the word of God. Uh, but whose zealotry just mows down people who experience things differently or don't quite understand things well yet, right? My way or the highway uh, type churches, and they're easier to build when there's only one type of person involved. We want churches built around one dominant pastor, so everybody has to act like that pastor, or one kind of gift, so everybody has to have that gift, otherwise they can't find anything uh, to do. As I say, real diversity, real variety, real stress requires that love grows. I think that humans often find this in marriage. You marry, the sum, you marry someone who really excites you, who really makes you feel good, and then two or three years into the marriage, you realize that you have married an alien. And this person has nothing in common with you, is designed by God to frustrate you daily. <laughs> and uh, some marriages. Some marriages. You've heard this sermon before, yeah. <laughs> and it's at the point where you start to get frustrated and sacrificial in a marriage that love begins to happen, right? That's, that's the point at which you actually start growing in love. I don't think couples get married because they love each other. I think couples get married because they commit to grow in love with each other for the rest of their lives. Um, we devils hate that. All right. So love has to grow. And, and uh, I have shared with you a scripture about how Jesus constructed a very tempestuous fellowship on which to build the entire Jesus movement but there are plenty of other scriptures 
uh, in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, uh, that uh, proclaim the same sort of integrated, uh, virtuous uh, approach. Philippians 2 says, In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, in a fellowship, what you need to do is keep track of what's important to other people. Right? And that's health, as Paul explained it to the Philippians. That's healthy fellowship. Or Romans 12. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all. That is a very enlightened way for Paul to say it to the Romans. It's like, look, you know, you can't make all of your arguments go away, but insofar as you have the leverage, as far as it depends on, on you, try to live at peace uh, with, with all, he says, uh, the people in your fellowship and everybody that comes in contact with. Everybody knows the famous Jesus teachings on it. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, that's not going to create a personality cult, that's for sure. If you actually live like that, um, it means that you're always going to be thinking of the other person, not what makes you comfortable, right, but what makes them comfortable. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you is kind of a recipe for living an uncomfortable life, um, if you think about it. Matthew 6, the most oft-quoted piece of scripture in all the world, the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We forgive those who have sinned against us. That if you want to be forgiven, you have to forgive people who rankle you. You have to forgive people who uh, spark against you, right? And that actually is how forgiveness and mercy flows in the kingdom. If you read the book of Acts, I would say at least half of the book of Acts is about Christians learning to get along with each other or learning to spread the gospel to people who are not like them, right? The Jews learn to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. The Gentiles learn to respect some of the Jews in their midst. Paul takes the gospel from culture to culture to culture, and all the time he's thinking about what's really essential and what's not essential. What's, what really do I have to insist on and what do I not have to insist on? It's a, it's a history of how Christianity jumped the wall, jumped the wall, broke down the dividing wall of hostility, as Paul described the Jesus mission uh, itself. So, in short, given all of that, what's the devilish trick? Well, the devilish trick is to get people to focus really much on fellowship, but to convince them that good fellowship should be stress-free. That's what you have to do. You have to sell fellowship without stress. It ain't Christian fellowship if it's stressful. It ain't Christian fellowship if it feels challenging. It ain't Christian fellowship if it requires a lot of work or arguments or disagreement, conflict. And if you can sell that idea, then you can destroy a lot of people. You can destroy... Uh, every, every church. We want people to think that Christian fellowship is entirely about safe spaces. Safe spaces, right? Where you're not going to get rattled. You're not going to get challenged. Where you can just relax. You know, imagine going to a gymnasium so that you could relax. Walking into the weight room so you could finally just recover. <laughs> right? But 
But that's what, that's what we want. Uh, do you need recovery? Yes, but not just recovery. You know, do that when you're not uh, in, in the weight room. We want people to think of Christian fellowship as an interest group. We want it to be built around one single cause in neglect of other causes uh, on the earth, even if it's a good cause, like the word or justice or experiencing the presence of the Spirit. As long as it's just one of those things, we win, right? When it has to be about all of them, then people are challenged and it becomes uncomfortable for at least some of them. Um, And they grow. Uh, We want to teach people to value the idea of diversity in a way that makes them reject people who have a different definition of it. I don't know if I can say that again. We we need, need to teach people to value diversity, the idea of diversity, in such a way that they reject people who have a different definition of it. There's a paradox in there. Uh, We want to make people not think about it uh, too hard. We want Christian fellowship to be anything but a family gathering. You perhaps have heard it said, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. Um, Otherwise, we'd all have slightly different families. Uh, You can't choose your Christian fellowship. Now, of course, the thing is you can in this world. You can, right? You can church shop. And you can go to the church that makes you the most comfortable, which is a tiny step away from making people believe that church should be comfortable. Right? And so you can see how we devils can play this to our good. We want people to say, I'm not leaving because I'm judging you. I'm just leaving because I need fellowship. Have you heard that? I've heard that in every church I've ever frequented. Like, I just, you know... This is just not the crew for me. Good. (laughs) Uh, Good. Um, Whenever we get people to focus on fellowship being super comfortable, we stifle learning and we stifle their change and we we stifle the growth of mutual respect in, in a group of believers. It's not hard, is it, when you think about it? It's just this one Christian idea that fellowship needs to be stressful at least a good portion of the time. And if we can just remove that one idea, we've got it. We've got them. Nothing could be easier. And that is the key to our success, devils. If you understand, cackle. Hiss, hiss. Rub your hands. All right. That's what we have to do. Not complicated, is it? It's not complicated, it's just integrated. All right, now I will take off my devil's hat for a minute and talk again uh, about, uh, talk from a, uh, a pastor's perspective, not a sociopastor's uh, perspective. Because if the devilish trick is to sell the idea of fellowship without stress, then the Christian trick, <laughs> the Christian method, is to stress fellowship. I'm doing a little word play there, but we want to be stressing fellowship. Stressing fellowship. And that's a double entendre. It means two different things. One, we want to stress that fellowship is super important for everyone, as Jesus did. His mode of ministry was to create 
a small group around him and to minister through that group. He was not a solo act. And if anybody in the history of the world could have been a solo act, probably Jesus could have pulled it off, right? But he limited himself by creating around him a bunch of guys that didn't get along with each other and often didn't get along with him. So by limiting himself in that way in the short term, he extended himself through all eternity uh, in the long term. So we want to stress the value of fellowship, um, and we want to also stress the value of stressful fellowship, that things should be a little uncomfortable for you. I am not at this point uh, preaching the value of challenging people, right? Uh, You want to speak the truth to people because they need you to hold them accountable. All right, that's true, but that's not what I'm talking about this morning. What I'm talking about this morning is you need to make yourself uncomfortable. Otherwise, you're not really getting the value of Christian fellowship in an integrated sort of way. Pursue fellowship. Stress it in your life. Go for it. Commit to it. It's super valuable. And pursue it in a way that causes you discomfort and and stretching. That's what I'm saying. And that's maybe a statement that you've heard before. You know, if you want to take a trafficking survivor off the street or, or from a program and put that person in your spare bedroom and on your couch, that will be stressful. Yes, yes it, will be, it will be stressful, just so you know. Uh, it will be awesome, it will be godly, it will be helpful, but it will also be stressful. That's a big part of why it's healthy, why it makes you grow in love, why it demonstrates love to the world, you know. Uh, How many of you attend one of our weekly Ohana groups? How many of you don't because it's just too stressful and hard in your life? You get the idea, right? But you have to have intense doses of fellowship if you want to grow. It's just a Jesus thing, right? And if it's hard for you to do it, great. If it's super easy for you to do it, change and come to my group because <laughs> uh, we will uh, we are meeting this week yeah um, I'm going to be out of town this week so I think the group will be less stressful yeah but there are also there are a lot of other great stressful groups out there uh, in the church uh, that you can partake of and they should all stress you out a, a little bit I, I, just, I just felt like testifying a bit this morning um, and saying that I, like every good thing that I've built in life that Sonia and I have built over the last uh, 30 years that, that we've been uh, married, I think has come out of um, a fellowship that was weird and stressful. You know, uh, The first small group that we led together uh, was in a super violent ghetto in the Bay Area in, in California. It's safe to say I was more comfortable there than you were. Uh, at, the, at the beginning, yeah, yeah, just getting involved with me was a growth adventure for you. <laughs> but it was in like a, I mean, like a super violent ghetto. Like we would not get through a group without hearing gunshots outside, like that kind of, that kind of place. And, uh, well, sometimes I guess we would, unless it went late. Um, but uh, we did this, thanks, Angel. Um Had a, uh, a tremendous variety of people come to that group. And at, at one point, uh, I remember Sonia and I and the leaders, our co-leaders, 
of the group, we kind of started praying for koinonia, which is the Christian word for, for fellowship, for gathering and fellowship, uh, that we would see just, a, just a, a spirit of koinonia, a spirit of fellowship break out there. And I don't know that any of us knew what that meant. But to this day, I would say that that small group for us probably represents the idea of koinonia and fellowship, the spiritual, supernatural aspect of it more than any group we've ever been a part of uh, because it was just such a weird group and it was in such a weird place. Uh, but we would pack like 55 people into my tiny little living room in uh, my ghetto house. Uh, we had this huge bay window. And sometimes people in the neighborhood, like across the street was a drug house and there were prostitutes on every corner. They would sometimes gather on the sidewalk opposite the bay window just to watch us as we worshiped and prayed for one another and stuff like that. Uh, but there was such trust and such embracing of conflict and, and misunderstanding um, in that group because we had people from all these different socioeconomic classes and racial groups. We had Palo Alto, maybe the richest uh, city uh, in Silicon Valley, right across the freeway, and East Palo Alto, which was by far the poorest town in the Bay Area. Um, and they would come together uh, in, in our living room, and nobody ever talked about it. They just loved each other. Uh, it's hard for me to explain how awesome it was, and a lot of those guys we still uh, keep in touch with uh, today. When that happens, the family of God always reproduces. Just any family has as its end reproduction. Right? When the family of God comes together in true fellowship like that, it always reproduces. Um, and I think that's going to happen to us uh, in uh, a really magnificent way here very shortly. I think that as we just embrace the idea of real Christian fellowship in the midst of an age that has been extraordinarily divisive and legalistic, that we will naturally reproduce in a spirit of koinonia, in a spirit of grace. And I just wanted to uh, inoculate everybody today with that idea. Notice I didn't say vaccinate, I said inoculate. <laughs> Speaking of divisiveness. And, um, so that when it starts happening, we don't let Satan trick us into just falling out with each other, you know, or falling out with me because I'm a terrible guy to get along with. Um, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all and reproduce and grow the family in a spirit of family. And, and I think that will be fine. There are people here today who have never really experienced family. You've only experienced relationships based on acceptance or rejection, right? Like you had to perform or get out. Blue water is not that. Blue water is not that. And so maybe that ministers to your heart today. You don't have to measure up. You don't have to measure up. You just have to show up. That's the Jesus promise for fellowship. You don't have to measure up. There is no template. You don't have to measure up. You just have to show up. So please show up. That's how you commit to fellowship. You show up no matter what. It's really simple. That's how you commit to fellowship. You show up no matter what. Those of you listening online, 
That's how you commit to fellowship. You show up no matter what, and it will change your life. And it will produce life and reproduce life. And we've been doing that for 2,000 years. And Jesus taught us how. Show up and you will reproduce life. That's the message for today. Can I have the prayer ministry team come forward, please? So if you've come today and you need your brothers and sisters to minister to you in the power of the Holy Spirit, come forward, let them pray for you. They'll lay a hand on your shoulder and they will invite the presence of God himself to come because this, this, uh, this fellowship has a father and he has sent us the spirit of adoption, uh, the Holy Spirit. If, uh, if you need healing in your bodies or some material breakthrough in your life or some prophetic direction for your life, come and let these people pray for you. But if you've come and you're like, you know, I just really want to join. You know, I, 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 want, I want to show up for this family. I want, I want to be in a faith family. Then come and just tell somebody. And they'll pray for you. They'll invite the Holy Spirit to come and, and, and fill you. And uh, you'll start your adventure uh, with the likes of us, which is not grand, but it's good. Let's stand and dismiss. Father God, I pray that you'd knit us all in a bit better. I pray um, that you'd give us glorious koinonia in this place. I pray that our family would grow, that our small groups would grow, uh, that our neighborhoods would grow in inclusiveness, that we would do it in the right spirit. Where God is God and it changes everything. How about people are just people and we love everyone? In Jesus' name, everybody says, Amen.